nuclear hot seat. What are those people thinking? Nuclear hot seat. What have those boys been drinking? Nuclear hot seat. The corium is sinking. Our time to act is shrinking, but our activists are linking. Nuclear hot seat. It's the bomb. Welcome to Nuclear Hot Seat, the weekly international news magazine keeping you up to date on all things nuclear from a different perspective. My name is Libby Halevi. I'm the producer and host, as well as a survivor of the nuclear accident at Three Mile Island from just one mile away. So I know what can happen when those nuclear so-called experts get it wrong. This week, we look at both the pre-shutdown and post-shutdown dangers that are faced by nuclear reactors here in the United States and, by extension, elsewhere. First, we take a look at the announcement that the Pilgrim nuclear reactor in Massachusetts will be shut down sometime up to and including 2019. Diane Turco of Cape Downwinders in Massachusetts joins us to explain exactly what that means to Massachusetts and New England residents. Then we take a look at the post-shutdown battles with two interviews on San Onofre, one with Donna Gilmore of San Onofre Safety on the problems with the thin tin can dry casks proposed for long-term storage at San Onofre, and Gary Hedrick, of San Clemente Green on the disappointing decision of the California Coastal Commission to cave into the demands of utility Southern California Edison. Plus, we'll have our regular numbnuts of the week, activist shout-outs, and more scary information on nuclear matters than you'll find in a haunted house. Coming up in just a few moments. Today is Tuesday, October 20th, 2015, and here is the week's nuclear news From our perspective, all eyes are on St. Louis and the West Lake landfill fire, which has been burning for five years and is now within a quarter of a mile of an illegal nuclear waste dump that contains as much as 40,000 pounds of unremediated waste going back to the Manhattan Project. In 1990, the landfill was deemed a Superfund site and in 2008, waste conglomerate Republic Services acquired the companies responsible for the Westlake site and for a neighboring lot, the Bridgeton Landfill, which is where the fire began. An emergency plan has been announced, and five school districts in the area have sent letters home to parents telling them of the plan they have for their children, who would be contained inside the school or moved into bunkers. Through all this, the Environmental Protection Agency, which is supposed to be in charge of the site and the cleanup, has been doing everything in its power to assure people that there is nothing to worry about, saying that there is no immediate threat of toxic fumes. However, the EPA has a record of being completely lax in its monitoring and downplaying any potential disaster or difficult radiological situation that it happens to encounter. So its claiming of no immediate threat is perhaps true because it's going to take three to six months for the fire to reach the radioactive site. Next week, 
Nuclear Hot Seat will present a full-length special episode specifically on the Westlake Fire, including interviews with some of our top experts and information on what you can do to best safeguard your physical and emotional health. Meanwhile, the Environmental Protection Agency's credibility in claiming that there is or is not a radiological danger in any situation has been further eroded as officials of the agency confirmed that 99 out of 135 total beta radiation sensors in its RADnet system, which monitors all 50 states, the District of Columbia, and Puerto Rico, are not working, and so they've been turned off. This is comparable to the lack of radiation monitoring available on the west coast of the United States after Fukushima because the majority of the monitors were not working and had not been for as long as 130 days. Those monitors, by the way, were under the supervision of Gina Never Met a Nuke I Didn't Like in Cover for McCarthy, who is the current head of the EPA. At another long-buried radioactive waste fire, 115 miles northwest of Las Vegas, EPA officials proudly announced that no gamma radiation had been found, but they did not measure or were unable to measure for beta radiation. Also, tests were conducted from a helicopter, which showed no radiation, but as we know from experiences at both Three Mile Island and Fukushima, the movement of the blades of the helicopter push air away and do not provide an honest radiation sample. So we do not yet know the circumstances with that fire in Nevada. And now... Nuclear hot seat, nuclear hot seat, nuclear hot seat, none that's not awake. Authorities in Illinois are searching for something called a radioactive well logging source holder. It's a steel container in silver, 12 inches high and 14 inches in diameter, that weighs about 75 pounds and is labeled on two sides with radioactive yellow 2 with the radiation symbol. This piece of equipment was last seen inside a vehicle from the company, but it has gone missing and now they are searching 18 counties across Illinois and Indiana to try and find the dang thing. They might as well put it on the side of milk cartons. Have you seen this radioactive thingamabob? Well, if you do, do not approach it and do not touch it and contact police because it's evil. With waste control specialists down in Texas making noise that they want to have nuclear waste from all over the country shipped into their facility to be buried, why should we take their assurances that this can be done safely when some little company with some little piece of equipment can't even keep it in the car and can't figure out where in two states it is? The container was last known to be in a company vehicle. That's why anybody who proposes shipping nuclear waste along our highways is this week's and every week's nuclear hot seat, none that's out of week. And some hopeful news out of Arizona where Congressman Raul Grijalva has announced a bill designed to permanently ban uranium mining in the Grand Canyon watershed. It will, if successful, permanently protect the Grand Canyon from new uranium mining claims, protect tribal sacred cultural sites, and do many other things that are good and right. Godspeed to you, Raul. Get it passed. 
Over to Japan, where a Japanese construction worker who worked at the Fukushima nuclear facility after the 2011 disaster has been confirmed to have developed cancer from radiation exposure. The man has received approval from the Health and Labor Ministry for compensation for the radiation-induced illness. I guess Japan just doesn't want to count all of the kids from Fukushima who have been found to have nodules on their thyroids and thyroid cancer, or the sailors from the USS Ronald Reagan who have gotten so ill, two of whom have died, and one of whom was pregnant during Fukushima and whose baby has since died, or Masao Yoshida, the head of the Fukushima 50 at Fukushima, who basically saved the world. But I guess they don't count when it comes to Japan, considering what is and is not a cancer case linked to Fukushima. Japan is resuming salmon fishing in Fukushima. Salmon, which is high on the food chain, it's a carnivore, and it accumulates cesium-137 and strontium-90 very quickly. In this numbnuts-adjacent piece, the Kawamata Skating Club in Fukushima Prefecture has announced that they are going to reopen their skating rink this January saying the rink will be safe because ice will block some of the radiation. No, it won't. That's not what ice does. And in Australia, the aboriginal traditional owners of the Ranger Uranium Mine Site have vetoed an extension of the operating life of the Energy Resources of Australia Mine as of January of 2021. The company is then obliged to rehabilitate the whole site to a standard where it can be incorporated into the surrounding Kakadu National Park. Clean up your mess, boys. Clean up your mess. We'll have the week's featured interviews in just a moment. But first, as I am recording this show, the new Nuclear Hot Seat website is being uploaded to my server. It is a massive job and will take much of the next few days to accomplish. But according to my tech guy, we are within days of being back up and operating and better than ever. Huzzah! Again, my thanks to all of you who donated to help make this happen. And my thanks also to those of you who wanted to donate, but couldn't, but sent good thoughts and wishes, which also helped. Of course, Nuclear Hot Seat still has monthly operating costs for the website and support services, So if you want to help support the show, please do so. To donate, you can go to the tattered remnants of the former site at NuclearHotSeat.com. That's where you can click on the big red Donate button, which connects to a secure link for you to make a donation, either through PayPal or directly from your credit or debit card. And if you prefer not to donate online, email me for a snail mail address to send your donation. Whatever you can do to help with our ongoing expenses as we continue to grow, to get you the best information possible on nuclear matters, whatever you can do, thank you. Today, we have three interviews that cover the pre-decommissioning and post-decommissioning problems that are faced once a nuclear reactor is in play for being shut down forever. We start with a look at last week's announcement by Entergy, that the Pilgrim Nuclear Facility in Massachusetts will be closing down by 2019. Now, is this announcement good news or bad news? To find out, we talked with Diane Turco, one of the founders of Cape Downwinders on Cape Cod. She focuses on raising awareness regarding the ongoing issues at Pilgrim, and when it came to last week's announcement, she had a lot to say. 
Diane Turco, welcome back to Nuclear Hot Seat. Thank you for having me. That was quite an announcement that went out from Entergy last week, except maybe not. And I'm wondering, in your part of the world, which is so close to Pilgrim, what was the response to Entergy's announcement that they were closing Pilgrim Nuclear Facility but putting it off until possibly as late as 2019? Well, you know, when we heard first heard Entergy will be closing Pilgrim, we were cheering. Three seconds later, we heard in 2019. You know, so to us, Entergy is trying to just develop a narrative that is not true. You know, the real narrative is not the nuclear plant will shut in 2019, but the fact is it will continue to operate a degraded and dangerous nuclear reactor for profit for four more years. And this is totally unacceptable. They're trying to also frame the message around energy and economics. And the primary issue surrounding Pilgrim is neither energy or economics. It's about public safety. As you know, the Nuclear Regulatory Commission has rated Pilgrim as one of the worst operating reactors in the country, continuously downgrading the reactor in the past three years. And now we're in a critical battle between money and profit over public safety, accountability, and unacceptable risks. So Pilgrim needs to be closed now, not in 2019. What are some of the problems that exist at the facility, and how might they be made worse during the next four years if the reactor keeps operating? Well, the Nuclear Regulatory Commission just recently found a 22-year-old fire code violation. The meteorological towers that detected the direction of nuclear releases has been down for three years. It was never maintained and not fixed. The switchyard has caused scrams that, according to the Union of Concerned Scientists, have led to near misses. It's just a, a list of ongoing noncompliance to uh, Nuclear Regulatory Commission safety regulations. And give people a visual sense of where Pilgrim is located as relates to both Boston and Cape Cod. Pilgrim is in the most beautiful little town, America's hometown of Plymouth, Massachusetts. It's about 35 minutes as the crow flies from downtown Boston and about 35 miles from where I live in Howard, Massachusetts. So it's just right between Boston and Cape Cod, right on Cape Cod Bay. And I understand from our previous conversations that because of its placement and because there are so few and such narrow roads onto and off of Cape Cod, if there should be an accident, there really is no chance for evacuation. It simply would not be possible. Well, you know, the roads in, in Plymouth are pretty narrow, and they all would, would dump into one major highway, Route 3. And then on Cape Cod, we've been told that there will be no evacuation if the plume is heading our way. Uh, the plan for Cape Codders are to shelter in place. The state is planning to close the bridges so that the people in the 10-mile area can evacuate down Route 3 along the canal and up to 495. So they're closing the bridges. There is no evacuation plan for Cape Cod. So we will be taking the radiological hit, and the state said they will be coming down in hazmat suits and move out everything living, and then we will be relocated, and we will not be able to return home just like in Fukushima. When we spoke with the um, director of the Massachusetts Emergency Management Agency, he actually compared what Cape Cod could be to Fukushima. Given this announcement by Entergy, what has been mm -hmm. the response by politicians and the media? I think people are very concerned. 
at first, you know, there was the, you know, it's shutting down. It was very exciting. But now people are stepping back and saying, what does that really mean? It's still going to operate in this very degraded situation. The NRC needs to step in right now and revoke the operating license, but they're not. So people know it's a very precarious situation, and they have to be vigilant. We're also looking, too, across the country at what's happening during decommissioning around other reactors, and it's a pretty scary proposition. There will be 47 years of waste at the Pilgrim Reactor. Most of it's still in the spent fuel pool. In 2006, the Attorney General of Massachusetts completed a study during the uh, relicensing of Pilgrim, and they determined that the spent fuel pool, which has densely packed and tightly wrecked fuel assemblies in a pool that was designed for 880 assemblies and now holds over 3,200, that what could happen is there could be a spontaneous fire that could never be put out. And that fire would cause 24,000 latent cancers. It would contaminate hundreds of miles downwind, and it would cause $488 billion in damages. That's sitting up there now. It's an imminent threat, and it will be an imminent threat until that spent fuel is out of the pool. And if I can just get back one second to the evacuation, if we look at Cape Cod as being closed off in the event of an accident and that the population is already expendable with sheltering in place and potassium iodide and being contaminated, if the wind blows the other way in the other direction towards Boston, that area is going to take the hit. And in fact, the MEMA directive says that swaths of Boston could be relocated. So you're looking at a huge, huge population. Over 5 million people are at risk. Has there been any outcry among the politicians, or I understand that the Boston Globe did have an editorial about this, but has there been any groundswell of support for the shut it down movement? Yes, yes, we have had great support on the Cape. We had Senator Dan Walsh and Representative Sarah Peake, who have been very strong in saying Pilgrim needs to be shut down now. It's an unacceptable risk. Other politicians, not so much. They identify the risk. They understand the dangers. They know what the Nuclear Regulatory Commission is saying, but they haven't called for an immediate shutdown of the reactor. What they're saying is now we have to have careful oversight until it's shut down, even though we know the NRC oversight has been failing for the past few years. In 2013, Pilgrim was rated one of the nine worst operating reactors, and there was increased nuclear regulatory oversight. In 2014, Pilgrim was rated as one of the fifth worst operating reactors, so there was increased NRC oversight. In 2015, it's one of the worst. And they're saying there'll be more increased oversight? That makes absolutely no sense. It needs to be shut down now. It does, and I just have to get a little bit of a semantic chuckle out of this because the word oversight, which is used yes. in oversee, also means overlooking. So it seems exactly. like the NRC and all the rest have been increasingly overlooking as opposed to overseeing in terms of monitoring and taking responsibility for it. Tell us about the planned October 28th Shut Pilgrim Speakout at the Massachusetts State House. Cape Downwinders and Massachusetts Downwinders have organized a speakout at the Massachusetts State House on October 22nd, this coming Thursday, from 1 to 3 o'clock at the Grand Staircase Hall, which is on the second floor of the State House. We have a lineup of speakers across the state. We have students from Norfolk High School coming. We have legislators speaking all calling for the immediate shutdown of Pilgrim because it's an imminent danger. It will be today, it will be tomorrow, it will be in four years. So it needs to be shut down right now. We will also be delivering a letter to the governor calling for him to uphold his mandate as chief public safety officer in the state of Massachusetts 
and call on the Nuclear Regulatory Commission to revoke the operating license of the Pelham reactor immediately. Will this speak out be followed by any kind of in-office lobbying of the various representatives who are at the State House? Well, actually, we have been lobbying all year. We've been lobbying uh, since January. We go up to the State House once a month and meet with representatives and senators and their staff, and we've been educating them on Pilgrim. So I think that the issue of Pilgrim is really it's out there right now. It's at the tipping point where people are understanding that it's a serious threat. What I see is the, some part, the, the governor was talking about the energy issue, Energy Corporation was talking about the economic issue, and really the fact is it's a public safety issue, primarily a public safety issue. So we're trying to keep that message out there and straight and strong that Pilgrim is an imminent threat to eastern Massachusetts and New England. If there were an accident at Pilgrim, it would forever change the landscape of Massachusetts. People need to understand that now. Diane Turco, thank you so much for your ongoing efforts on behalf of shutting Pilgrim down, and thank you for joining me yet again on Nuclear Hot Seat. Thank you so much. That was Diane Turco of Cape Downwinders. If you wish to join the Shut Pilgrim Speakout Rally on Thursday, October 22nd, go to the Massachusetts State House inside the Grand Staircase on the second floor between 1 and 3 p.m. Lots of good folks, lots of good information. Next, we turn to the problems that can come up after a nuclear reactor has been shut down. Problems such as those being faced in California after the successful closure of the San Onofre facility in 2013. We'll hear from two of the many activists who were involved in the coalition that shut the reactors down. First, Donna Gilmore of SanOnofreSafety.org explains what her research has shown about the dangers of the dry casks chosen by utility operator Southern California Edison and the Nuclear Regulatory Commission. This is excerpted from a longer interview with Donna that was heard on Nuclear Hot Seat number 188 on January 27, 2015. We have some serious issues with the dry cast storage situation in the United States and at San Onofre and at Diablo Canyon. The canisters that the United States is using and Diablo is using and San Onofre is using are thin canisters that are subject to cracking in our ocean environment. These canisters were just designed to last a short time, but now we have a game-changer event. The NRC has decided they can stay right where they are indefinitely. So we need a better solution. These canisters may crack from the ocean environment. They call it stress corrosion cracking, and this may start happening within 30 years of when they're loaded. They cannot be inspected, even on the outside, for corrosion or cracks. They can't be repaired. There's no early warning system in place to warn us that they're going to crack, so we won't know until after they crack and release radiation into the environment. The EPRI, which is an, an industry research company, they looked at the surface, a little bit of the surface at, at a Diablo Canyon uh, canister. It's a Holtec brand, the same one that they want to use uh, at San Onofre. They looked at the surface. They can't get to the whole canister. They could only see a little piece of it, and they scraped off some surface material. They found 
corrosive salt, magnesium chloride salt, on the canister after only two years of it being loaded with fuel. This is the material that can cause corrosion and cracking in that canister. The NRC thought it was going to take 30 years before the temperature would be low enough on these canisters for the salt to dissolve and start the corrosion cracking process. They were wrong. They found the salts, they found the temperature low enough for the humidity, the moisture in the air, to be able to stay on the canister long enough to dissolve the salts. But, but the problem is the NRC is not dealing with this. And to make matters worse, even though Edison knows about this and PG&E knows about this, they want to continue to buy these inferior canisters. Edison is planning to spend about $1.3 billion, not million, billion dollars to buy these inferior uh, Holtec thin canister sy- uh, system. There are also many other corrosion factors that have not been addressed in these uh, thin canisters. The NRC just hasn't gotten around to, to, to researching those. Regarding repairing thin canisters, Dr. Singh, who is the president and CEO of Holtec, even the president of the company that makes these canisters, says you shouldn't even attempt to repair these canisters. That just creates a rough surface that can be the trigger for a new, new corrosion down the road. And he also said microscopic cracks can release millions of curries of radiation into the environment. In addition, there is no plan for replacing cracked canisters. No funds have been budgeted for that. And the NRC allows the spent fuel pools where the fuel is put into right after it comes out of the reactor. It stays in there for a number of years cooling before it can put into canisters. Once the canisters are emptied, like at San Onofre, you know, when they're decommissioning, they they eventually will take the fuel out of the pools and put it into these canisters. Once the pools are empty, the NRC is allowing them to destroy the pools. The pools are the only way that if there was a cracked canister that they could put the fuel back underwater in the pools so they could transfer it to another one. The NRC allows them to remove them. In fact, at Humboldt Bay up in Northern California and at Rancho Seco near Sacramento, they've already removed the pools. So those canisters are like ticking time bombs, and no one's going to know when they're going to crack open, and they got no plan in place. And, in fact, at Humboldt Bay, the NRC just approved the elimination of all emergency planning. They don't even have to notify the local and state government about any kind of, uh, you know, radiation leak or anything. They don't even have to notify them anymore. They, they just have this illusion that nothing's going to go wrong. The canisters that they're planning to use at uh, San Onofre, they are currently not approved by the NRC, yet the Edison announced they're already buying it. Uh, and the PUC has, the California Public Utilities Commission, has not approved the money for this system. And we're urging, and we want to continue to urge people to tell your elected officials, local, state, and the, and the PUC not to approve the money for these uh, inferior canisters that may crack right here within the next 30 years. There are better systems on the market. And these canisters are not designed to be replaced. They're, they have a welded shut lid, so they were designed for short-term storage. In addition, no spent fuel in one of these canisters 
has ever been reloaded into another thin canister. They've never, it has to be done underwater and they've never even tried it. So this is really an unproven system, immature industry that's only been around a few years. In addition, there is no defense in depth in these thin canisters. What that means is if that stainless steel canister it's only half inch to five eighths inch thick. If that cracks open, there's nothing else in place to stop that radiation from getting out. Those canisters, because they're so thin, they don't protect from certain kinds of radiation, such as gamma and neutron. Because of that, they take the thin canisters and they put them in these big concrete overpacks. The industry always says, oh, these are really it's thick concrete overpacks. But what they don't tell you is there's vents in that concrete that keeps the inner thin stainless steel canister cool with convection cooling. So actually this convection cooling process makes a nice distribution system for moving the, the radiation out if there is a crack in that canister. In addition, because of the limitations of the thin canister for protection, they require the purchase of a another cast just to transport it from the pool into the cement thing. And in addition to that, they require a transportation cast to have them stored in a transportation cast if you want to move them off-site. And that transportation cast hasn't even been approved by the NRC. And in addition, Holtec hasn't even submitted an application to get approval from the NRC for that transportation cast. Now, one of the problems we have at San Onofre and at Diablo Canyon is about 10 years ago, they started using what's called high burn-up fuel. This fuel burns longer in the reactor, which makes the utilities more money. However, it results in nuclear waste that's over twice as radioactive and over twice as hot as what they used to use, the lower burn-up fuel. In addition, there's a protective zirconium fuel cladding on the uranium, and this high, this high burn-up, damages that fuel cladding and makes it brittle even after dry storage. Um, and the result of that is you have unstable and unpredictable fuel in storage and transport. I mean, the NRC will admit that they don't know what's going to happen after this uh, fuel is in storage and what's going to happen in transport. It, well, it's impossible to examine these, this, what they call fuel assemblies for damage before they even put it in the dry cast. They can't see all the parts of it. So we don't know if any of the fuel they're putting in these casts already has damaged cladding on it. And the best technology in the world are thick casts. These thick casts are up to 20 inches thick compared to the thin canisters, which are one half inch to five eighths inches of a thick. The thick canisters won't crack. They can re be repaired. They can be inspected. They have an early warning monitor system prior to releasing radiation. They meet international certifications. They've been in use for over 40 years, unlike ours, which are about 20 years max. They have defense in depth, so that you don't have a single point of failure. You have redundancy. In addition, in uh, Germany and at Fukushima, they store thick casts in concrete reinforced buildings for extra protection from the environment and under other external hazards. And you don't need any kind of concrete overpack because they're so thick they protect from the gamma and neutron radiation so employees can actually get close to them 
without the concern with the radiation. The thick calves are the market leader in the rest of the world. So we are out of step with what the rest of the world is doing. They are more concerned about safety. They knew there was no guarantee there would be a permanent repository. So they erred on the side of safety, and we didn't. That was Donna Gilmore. Her website, which is chock-a-block full of great, fully footnoted information, is sanonofresafety.org. Finally, a look at the kinds of manipulations the nuclear industry goes through to guarantee profits and negate citizen concerns once a nuclear cash cow reactor is forced into retirement. Gary Hedrick and his wife Lori founded San Clemente Green, an ecologically focused group in Southern California, and they started in 2011 right after Fukushima. They were also part of the coalition that battled the San Onofre nuclear power plant. Here, Gary brings us up to date on the latest rulings on fuel assembly storage at the San Onofre site, as decided by the California Coastal Commission just two weeks ago on October 5th. Gary, briefly, fill people in on your background as regards the battle around San Onofre through this time of shutdown. As founder of San Clemente Green, we were very closely involved in the shutdown and moved right into the next concern, which was, what do we do with the waste? And with that in mind, we kind of held off thinking we had more time, but it turns out this is a much more urgent matter than anybody realized. And uh, that's the hard part right now is trying to raise awareness so something will be done before it's too late. Give us a sense of how much waste there is at San Onofre and how it is currently being handled. Right now, we have two different kinds of storage systems at San Onofre. One is the wet and one is the dry. And the wet is for cooling, so it can be cool enough to be transferred to dry storage. And currently, about one-third is in dry storage, which amounts to 50 tanks, containers, casks, whatever you like to call them. And these casks hold highly radioactive materials that will be dangerous for thousands of years. So the importance of having the right cask can't be overstated, but what we have are inferior casks holding what would amount to the same amount of radiation that was released at Chernobyl, which is one of these containers, and we have 50 of them, and there's 80 more to come. So the danger is even greater than what we feared with the reactor meltdown, which would have been horrible in either regard, but we're looking at these containers and we know that they're prone to cracking and could happen within 17 years. And then you do the math, well, they've already been around for at least 10 or 12 years. So the time's wasting and we've got to get the right casks for the right job, which is only going to buy us time because really the ultimate problem, we don't even know if there's an answer what to do with permanent storage. And the wet stores you referred to, this is the spent fuel pools. Correct. Spent fuel pools are designed to cool the fuel so it can be placed into dry cast storage. But if we don't keep it cold or cool enough, it can have a nuclear reaction again. And so we have to keep it cold. And the only way we know to do that is submerged in water. If something was to happen to those pools, like the inevitable earthquake we know is coming, those pools could leak and crack or pumps could break or there could be human air. And next thing you know, 
the pools start evaporating because the heat starts boiling it off. And 40 feet of water sounds like a lot, but it can boil off in a matter of hours. And the cladding that goes around the fuel is a metal that is capable of igniting just from being exposed to the heat and in the air. So you could have a fire that's not extinguishable, just spewing radiation into the environment, and no one could get near it because all the billions of curies that would be coming from that area. San Onofre sits right on the ocean. For people who are not from Southern California, give them a sense as to where these fuel pools are as regards the topography of our area. We have a tsunami wall, they call it. It's only 14 feet above high tide. And right behind that tsunami wall is the storage area that they want to put another 80 casks of dry storage, and they're going to put it on sandstone bluffs. Not only are they going to put it on the surface of the sandstone bluffs, but they've decided that they're going to bury it in a monolithic concrete slab. And there it is right on the ocean in the earthquake zone, you know, where we could have tsunami. It's just the worst place you could possibly have it. But on top of that, in order to put it under the dirt there, they have to excavate where Unit 1 used to be and where it's known to have tritium leaks where the Unit 1 used to be. So we've got radioactive soil being moved to put radioactive containers in. And it looks to me like what Edison would like to do is take the casks, bury them, and never touch them again and leave it to somebody else. It's just horrendous to think that we have that kind of waste, that kind of radiation, 100 feet from the shore with a 14-foot wall to protect us. It couldn't be worse. Where are the authorities in all of this? Where is the California Coastal Commission, and where has the California Public Utilities Commission been in this decommissioning process? All of the agencies who are intending to protect us because we're the public and safety is their number one concern, that would be the Nuclear Regulatory Commission, and also Coastal Commission to some degree. CPUC has to do with our finances and what they can get approved to spend, but the organizations that are supposed to protect the public are dysfunctional, just like so many things in our government right now. So the ability to get the right decisions made has to come from the grassroots, from the ground up, and we have to go above and beyond these agencies that are dysfunctional and probably reach at least Governor Brown, to change the way things are going because the direction we're headed is just a wild ride into the future with no brakes, basically. It's going to be a desperate time if something starts to go wrong with these casts. And when you feel like you can't trust the experts, then you have to rely on yourself and other people that will listen to your concerns and join forces. There was recently a hearing that took place on these issues with the California Coastal Commission. Tell us what that circumstance was and how the hearing went. The California Coastal Commission hearing was about whether San Onofre would be allowed to bury these casks deep into this new monolithic concrete structure 100 feet from the shore. And when you think that, okay, the Coastal Commission has been refrained from having anything to do with radiation, they still have authority over access to the beach. So that was our hope that they might realize 
putting dangerous materials near the beach is going to make the beach inaccessible if there's any kind of accident or leak, large or small. The Coastal Commission had the opportunity to deny the permit to build this new monolithic concrete structure into the sandstone bluffs 100 feet from the ocean, which is the bottom edge comes right down to the waterline. So we have this terrible plan, and the Coastal Commission could have stepped up, but they didn't. I'm not sure where the pressure comes from exactly in these deals, but a couple of the commissioners were saying things that really made sense, and you would think it would make them vote against the permit, but in the end, they all voted unanimously to approve it. But what was interesting about one of the commissioner's comments is that conditions were made to get the permit approved, which makes it in 20-year time frame, the condition calls to reinspect the casks, make sure that they're inspectable, make sure that they're not deteriorating from the marine environment and that there are no leaks, all these things that we would want them to do right now. And so the commissioner said, if we're going to make that condition for 20 years from now, why wouldn't we make that condition from the day of the start? Why isn't that in our consideration today in this approval? Because if they can't inspect, then why are we approving this? And with such a logical refrain and we're listening from the audience with much enthusiasm, thinking it might actually go our way, uh, we were very disappointed to see the vote go elsewhere. It just didn't make sense at all. But that's how these things are when you have a dysfunctional system. And I understand that there was an interesting circumstance that came up with the San Diego Union leader, major newspaper, that points to the fact that maybe the fix was in beforehand. Right. I'm not sure if I'm reading too much into this, but when the Union Tribune wrote an article on the Coastal Commission, they also included the fact that they were notified an hour and a half before the decision was made that the decision was final and then it was unanimous. And it was from public relations people at Edison that shared that information with media, and then they had to retract it. The only thing I can conclude from that is they already figured it was a done deal. There's no decision made until an hour and a half later. It shows you that we've really got no control over people that are making decisions to influence not just our lives, but thousands of years to come. That's uh, a little bit frightening, you know, when you're having these meetings, you wonder why we're having a meeting if it's already a done deal. Rather than just go through the motions, it's an opportunity for the public to become more aware and start taking control of these institutions that are so in need of just to shake up and redo this so it works the way it was intended. So at this point, it sounds like Southern California Edison has got the go-ahead to install dry casks of inferior construct, the whole tech, which Donna Gilmore has been so good about explaining to us, and that once the waste is installed in these casks, they can dismantle the cooling pools, wipe their hands of the whole thing, and walk away. And any future problem is that of we the people as opposed to they the utility that we're running this. Is that accurate? Or is there an interim step that we might be able to take to change the course that this is currently taking? Well, the time is running out. And I think the best opportunity we have in terms of raising awareness is 
collectively lobbying our, our state authorities, mostly through uh, reconsider this decision that the Coastal Commission made. There's talk about appeals being made, but nobody will make a change unless there's a serious groundswell from the grassroots effort. So we're working now on how to coordinate our efforts with the legal teams that are pending the appeal process. And it's going to take letter writing, petitions, and just getting involved so people share this information with their friends and their contacts. What's really frightening about this is that it seems to be a window onto what other activists in other locations are going to be dealing with once they get their local reactors shut down, that there are going to be all of these backdoor, backroom shenanigans where responsibility for the waste is not going to go to the people who created it, and there's going to be financial manipulation as well that puts the cost on the shoulders of the ratepayers as opposed to the companies that created the mess in the first place, and they're walking away with more money. Exactly. Actually, they're getting exactly what they want. And you can imagine being in a position like the utility company where they've got waste that there's nowhere to take, which is DOE's responsibility, and they have containers that were only designed to be used temporarily, so they manipulated the NRC to approve them for longer than they should ever have been approved for. So now they're on top of all that. Instead of having the cast that you can inspect or repair if there's a crack, they're using welded containers that are known to crack. They're putting them under concrete and soil where you can't even inspect them. And there's no pools to fix them if there is a leak. And these are not even transportable containers. They're too heavy for the roads. So it's kind of clear to me that Edison people have no intention of even worrying about getting this stuff off the site. Once it's in dry cast storage buried in concrete and soil, I think they're just going to walk away or leave it to Bechtel or whoever the engineering company is that will dismantle all the hardscape. And then once that's done, it's the people's problem. And I'm sure they will all be moving from their multi-million dollar homes facing the ocean to someplace that is a bit more secure from nuclear waste, if they can even find such a place. Right. That's. I used to think the same way in some regards. You know, this problem is so big, it'd be nice to be able to move away if you just think, I've had enough. I, I just don't want to take the risk anymore. But this is a global planetary problem. If we're having a problem at San Onofre, the same problems will exist at other nuclear plants. And if, if our containers leak, who's to say they don't all start leaking at the same time? It's just, there's no escape. It's just got to be handled as responsible as we can. And that's not happening by any means right now. Well, Gary, thank you so much for your efforts on behalf of this. I know it was a real team project down in the San Diego area in working on San Onofre and for all the groups that are still working on San Onofre because the problem's not going to go away. We are stuck with the equivalent of Chernobyl, which is planned to be buried on the coast in an earthquake tsunami zone with all of the other negatives that you mentioned too. So whatever the Beach Boys were singing about back in the 60s and perhaps the 70s doesn't sound like that's the case anymore for the California coast.
I'm afraid you got it right, but we're not going to sit by and watch it happen, that's for sure. As I said before, Gary, thank you so much. You've been a great activist on this, a great source of information. And I want to thank you for, again, making yourself available to Nuclear Hot Seat. You're very welcome. And if I can just add one more comment, there's nothing special about me other than I heard the news and I had to do something about it. I think everyone should realize you don't need to have special qualifications. You need to have a sense of responsibility for these things and just go for it. Don't let these things happen. You can do it. Indeed you can. That was Gary Hedrick of San Clemente Green. The group's website is sanclementegreen.org. I spoke with Donna Gilmore earlier today, and she added this suggestion as an action to take in the wake of the Coastal Commission decision. She said that we can request that the California Coastal Commission revoke their decision to grant the permit. They can write Joseph Street, and the email address is joseph.street at coastal.ca.gov. And when you write to joseph.street at coastal.ca.gov, state that the Coastal Commission decision assumes that the canisters, the Holtec canisters, will be transportable in 20 years. But the Commission was not informed that even partially cracked canisters cannot be transported at all. She's got a full explanation up on the website, sananofresafety.org. In the meantime, let's crank out some email. As I mentioned before, the Nuclear Hot Seat website is going live sometime in the next week. There is, however, another site that I have been involved with creating. To those of you concerned about best practices to help safeguard your health against radiation, I want to let you know about the RAPT program. That's RAPT spelled R-A-P like Peter, T like Tom. And it stands for Radiation Awareness Protection Talk. It's a downloadable audio program put together by Kimberly Roberson and myself to share the research we'd already been doing on ways to help self-guard our health in this Fukushima'd up world. If you don't know Kimberly, she's a founder of Fukushima Fallout Awareness Network, a former Greenpeace nuclear campaigner, and author of Silence Deafening, Fukushima Fallout, A Mother's Response. She's also a certified nutrition educator, so this woman's got some serious creds. She's also terrific to work with. Me? I read about this stuff and research it all the time, and I'm always looking for information to pass on. Together, Kim and I compiled a six-audio program, three primary audios and three bonuses, that give information on every aspect of nuclear danger and possible safeguards to institute that we could find and judge credible. It includes foods to eat and foods to avoid because they've been found in some instances to be radioactive, water and air purification, supplementation, emergency response preparedness in case of a nuclear incident or accident nearby. And there's a lot more. While nothing is a guaranteed protector against the ravages of radiation and what it can do to your health and genetics, there are steps to take And that's what we concentrate on. RAPT has a new Facebook page. Search under R-A-P like Peter, T like Tom, and it will come up. Or you can check out our website, raptawareness.com. 
We have a free report there, as well as information on how to purchase the downloadable, instantly available audio series, which right now is on a special reduced price through this Sunday, October 25th. And mark Sunday, November 8th at 4 p.m. Eastern, 1 p.m. Pacific time, which is when Wrapped will present our next informational call on liquid zeolite and how to use it. Activist shout-out. Mark Kronowitz, what a doll you are. Mark has been helping to post Nuclear Hot Seat on Tuesday nights all over Facebook. This is at the end of my production day, and usually I'm exhausted. So having help at that time is really important to me. If you or anyone you know would also wish to help, please get in touch. Send an email to info at nuclearhotseat.com, and we'll get this all coordinated with Mark so that you can be happy spreading the word all over the Internet. And if you are in Washington, D.C. on Thursday, October 29, take part in the Think Nuclear Free Symposium and the Nuclear Free Future Awards, our own red carpet gala. This symposium will be hosted by Dr. Gordon Edwards of Canada, co-founder of the Canadian Coalition for Nuclear Responsibility, and will take place at the Goethe Institute, sponsored by the Institute and also Heinrich Boll Stiftung, North America. So you know in part what you'll be celebrating. The Resistance Award will go to Sister Megan Rice, Michael Wally, and Greg Borchia Obed. The three activists from Transform Plowshares Now, who staged a nonviolent protest for peace at the Y-12 facility in Oak Ridge, Tennessee. Sneaking onto the property and showing that the security wasn't actually that secure. These three were arrested, imprisoned, and only recently released. The event is free, open to the public, and yes, munchies will be served. Here's today's final thought. The dirty little secret of the nuclear industry is that you don't need an A-bomb exploding or a reactor meltdown, an earthquake or a tsunami to become supertoxed with deadly radiation. All you need is incompetence in handling radioactive waste, and that's what we're seeing in spades lately. North St. Louis and the Westlake landfill fire, fire at an old nuclear waste dump in Las Vegas, the ongoing shutdown of the waste isolation pilot plant in Carlsbad, New Mexico, even radiological equipment falling off a vehicle, causing a frantic search in 18 counties in two states, as well as the ongoing problems of fire code violations, tritium in the groundwater, and other business-as-usual atrocities of the nuclear reactor gang. Predictably, the nuclear and governmental experts are all telling us the equivalent of, don't worry your pretty little head over this, Missy, we'll take care of it. And so they continue to get away with the same garbage over and over and over again, and we the people get hit with the consequences to our health, to our children, to our DNA and our genetic futures. We are all collateral damage to a pathological technology. I was collateral damage once at Three Mile Island, and I can tell you it is no fun. Nobody has a right to violate our bodies the way the nuclear industry and its flying monkeys at the EPA regularly do. Perpetrators, that's what they are, 
perpetrators in the physical and sexual violation sense. Because that's where radiation comes home to roost, in our bodies, especially damaging to our reproductive organs, more so for women, but men get hit with it too. And then there are the children and the fetuses. These nuclear experts stand up in front of us with straight faces, and they lie. Oh, 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 I'm sorry. They provide reassurances. And they think they'll get away with it because they've always gotten away with it before. And we're all supposed to be good little kids and shut up and go away and pay no attention to the seething, deadly, devilish mess that the nuclear industry has swept under the rug and hidden behind that curtain. But suddenly, all of these hidden non-explosive nuclear bombs are exploding into people's consciousnesses. And with it, the potential for large-scale action is growing. It was the response of citizens in this country after Three Mile Island that stopped the nuclear industry in its tracks for the better part of 30 years. Pro-nukers have been thinking they're on the ascendancy again and that nothing can stop them. But now, unfortunately for the people of St. Louis, we have the evolving situation there, and other nuclear problems are making themselves known, and mainstream media is starting to pay attention. And so are some powerful state politicians who have not yet been bought off or shut up by the nuclear industry. This battle ain't over, not by a long shot. I'll be calling the play-by-play, blow-by-blow from the ringside, the battle for, maybe it's Armageddon. Maybe it's just David and Goliath. Just remember, we're the good guys, and David won. This has been Nuclear Hot Seat for Tuesday, October twentieth, 2015. Material for this week's program has been researched and compiled from... ENENews.com, LATimes.com, KSDK.com, WSJ.com, ABCNews.go.com, KFVS12.com, PhoenixNewsTimes.com, Yahoo.com, Japan Times, Maureen Roy for her posting of the story about Fukushima salmon, BBC.com, Beyond Nuclear, and the ever-linking activists of the Nuclear Hot Seat community on Facebook, which you are all invited to join. Theme music written by me, sung by Marilee Weber, accompanied by John Barnard. Nuclear Hot Seat is syndicated by UCY.TV and is also available on iTunes under podcasts. Our archive will be available on the website again soon, soon, very soon. And for now, you can find it on YouTube under Nuclear Hot Seat Videos, with our thanks to Joni Ray and Ms. Milky the Clown. Nuclear Hot Seat is the activist voice on nuclear issues. So if you have a story lead, a hot tip, or a suggestion of someone to interview, send an email to info at nuclearhotseat.com. We are copyright 2015, Libby Halevi and Hardistry Communications. All rights reserved, but fair use allowed, as long as proper attribution is provided. A quick reminder that next week's program is going to be a special on the Westlake landfill situation with some very big interviews and some profound advice and information. This is Libby Halevi of Heart History Communications, the heart of the art of communicating, 
Reminding you that, as Albert Einstein once said, if nuclear is the correct answer, it must have been a stupid question. We've all had our nuclear wake-up call. Now, don't go back to sleep, because we are all in the nuclear hot seat. Nuclear hot seat, what are those people thinking? Nuclear hot seat, what have those boys been drinking? Nuclear hot seat, the corium is sinking. Our time to act is shrinking, but our activists are linking. Nuclear hot seat, it's the bomb. <laughs> 